Hello and welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name is Patrick. I'm Steve. And my name is Gary Butterfield. Yes, today we are joined by my friend Gary from the DuckFeed.tv uh, network of podcasts. Uh, Gary, do you want to tell listeners what it is that you do? Yeah. Um, so this is a, a kind of a family of podcasts, primary, some comedy, but primarily about video games. Uh, most notable for Watch Out for Fireballs, which is a, a retro games book club style podcast, and Bonfireside Chat, which is a area by area exhaustingly uh, close-up examination of the Dark Souls series and their influences and, and uh, antecedents yes, and the like. Yeah, I've uh, I've been a guest on a couple of the Bonfire Star chat episodes to talk about uh, Dark Souls 2 and Bloodborne. And um, mm-hmm. it's funny, I knew I wanted to get you on our show at some point, and I was just recently tweeting about the research that was going into this episode. And, uh, you know, you'd mentioned that Maniac Mansion was your favorite NES soundtrack, so it's kind of like, oh, crap, like... We, this is episode we should get you on then and uh so that was literally just last night so thank you so much for being able to like swing this this is a very last second arrangement here so oh yeah i, I would have been disappointed to miss it yeah, um, yeah. so I, yeah i'm really happy <laughs> yeah to get on here any i don't get enough uh, opportunity to gush about the soundtrack even when we did the um we did an episode on maniac mansion for watch out for fireballs but because we had uh ron gilbert on we he did not work on the nes version so we mm-hmm. played the uh the pc version ah gotcha for that so i i still mm-hmm. use this music but i didn't get as much of a chance to talk about it because uh ron had nothing to do with it so right. I, I felt a little bit like uh, like a, a waste there but any opportunity i have to talk about the soundtrack because it is ace um so let's get started uh maniac mansion was a point and click adventure game that was originally released for the commodore 64 and apple II computer systems in 1987 uh, it lets you control three out of seven total possible characters, and you just basically guide them around like a mad scientist's house. Yeah, basically, uh, exactly. Um, Maniac Mansion was actually the first published game by LucasArts, um, and they were actually known as Lucasfilm Games at the time. Uh, and you may have heard of the Scum engine before. It's like the that adventure game engine that a bunch of those LucasArts games ran on, like uh, Monkey Island series, Full Throttle, uh, Sam and Max at the Road, which is a great game um it's um its first iteration the very first use of the scum engine was maniac mansion uh and it stands for scum literally stands for a script creation utility for maniac mansion yeah yeah that's why where you get the the scum vm as well the Mm -hmm. virtual machine for such um so this game uh as as people are listening probably know i was ported to a lot of different platforms which is the reason why it ends up on this show because one of those platforms is the nintendo famicom and nes uh, this was first ported to the Famicom in Japan in 1989, and though this is a completely separate project handled by Jalico, uh, it doesn't directly share any of the assets, uh, code, or anything like that. It looks completely different. Um, we're talking about the NES version, and that's what we got in the States, and uh, has this phenomenal soundtrack. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, I've never played through the Japanese version. It seems to be like an okay port, uh, but it, it has like a lot of cut, cut content from it, and... Uh, the music really isn't as interesting. There's like a few like classical sounding tunes in it. It doesn't have like the really fun music. The it's, the uh, the visuals are different. It's more cartoony, um, which is kind of weird. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that was kind of a, a, you know, when I was kind of looking up uh, a little bit about it, that was like what most people point out. There's a couple different things they changed in it, and that's one of the bigger things. So, mm-hmm. absolutely, yeah, and and not nearly as much as or as famously as the stuff that was changed for the NES version, uh, mm-hmm. because oh, the, yeah. the version. 
yeah, the, the version we got is is kind of cut and censored and and destroyed because the Nintendo was very strict about all this uh, the content that was allowed in their games. Yeah, um, there's there's some dialogue that got changed. Um, there's a bit of dialogue in the original or in the NES version that says "Don't be a tuna head." Uh, that origi- was originally "Don't be a shithead." However, <laughs> the arcade game Tuna Diver remains in. <laughs> yeah, uh, which seems way more problematic to me. Uh, as a phrase yeah that's so. and that's amazing yeah there was also some bits of like uh, nudity and suggestive imagery that was cut as well like uh the original version had a swimsuit calendar and like a well a classical sculpture which i mean i you know i don't think that's very racy really but oh. i mean even the scum engine wasn't allowed to be mentioned in the credits because nintendo thought that scum looked bad the word scum is a bad <laughs> word to them i guess yeah <laughs> that's really fine I mean, yeah it's a pretty obviously an acronym you know i don't think like yeah yeah you know, that's that's ridiculous. So, it's, it's not named after John Scum. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like the, the New England Scums. Uh, oh, th- there's a really funny webpage detailing the censorship struggles and basically how much Nintendo pissed off some of the developers. Um, it's written by Douglas Crockford, and I'll link to it in the show notes. So it's a highly recommended read. It's like a classic webpage. I think it's been up for a long time. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a great thing. Check it out. Yeah. So anyway, so... Uh, I think because of the censorship, a lot of fans of Maniac Mansion recommend playing the original version. You know, like they feel like the Nintendo is kind of like a the NES version is kind of watered down in some ways. Um, but I mean, the original versions don't have the fantastic NES music. Um, so I know they have like a deluxe uh, version of the game that has some different music. Um, but the ideal like deluxe version of Maniac Mansion to me would be if like someone could hack that version and put the NES music back in because I mean Maniac Mansion without the NES music to me is like sort of lacking because th- this is such a good port and has such mm-hmm. fantastic music that it's become a really integral uh, part of the game I think. It, one of the things I like to think about uh, in regards to the music of this game is that the music is so good that it's worth giving up mouse control for in a point and click adventure game. Yeah, like <laughs> oh, th- this absolutely. is a point and click adventure game, and I will I will play this without a mouse in, in exchange for being able to listen to the soundtrack. Yeah, uh, which is you know about as high a compliment as I can pay it. Yeah, yeah, because that that's a huge uh, yeah. You're losing like a really important uh, interface that you know. The interface isn't great on the NES version. Right. Like it's not too bad, but if you're controlling a cursor with a D-pad, you're not. Things aren't, aren't going well. It's yeah. like when you start eating pie filling, or like you're you're like oh stocking up on canned goods. Like it is a sign that things are not going well uh, in general. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, I remember we were talking a little bit before off podcast, um, and you had said something that you'd really liked about the soundtrack, where it's one of the first soundtracks you had listened to, and you'd thought about how it brought uh, like characterization uh, for, into the game, like through the different themes for all the characters. Um, and you know, I, I just think that's a really fantastic, important part of the soundtrack. Yeah, it's. I mean, obviously, that's something that you want to to do, right? Like that's that's like Peter and the Wolf. You know, like you have these different different themes that, that show up for different characters, and and this is a wolf, so it's foreboding, and this is a, a dad, so he's bum 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 bum. You know, you do, you yeah. do things like that. But uh, this was the first time I'd noticed it, and one of the things I love about it is its uh, direct characterization. It's diegetic. Um, you know, in the fiction of the game, uh, there there is 
only, like there's a score that shows up when when the Edisons are on and and during the uh, the credits. Right. But for the most part, it, these are Walkmans that the characters are carrying around. Yeah. Um. The, these are these are literally C play, CD players that are in your inventory. Um. So this is the music those characters like, and you can you can know a lot about a character from what they what they like. Like there's not a lot of dialogue in this in this game. Um. I mean, there's a decent amount, but there's not a lot to separate, say, like Sid and Razor. Right. Uh, based on what they say. But if you look at how they're dressed and what kind of music they like, you can get kind of an idea that like you oh. know, one of them's kind of this cool new wave guy and this is a punk chick. Yeah, it gives them tons of personality. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that just I remember that just being really when I first realized that and I was like, oh, this is not just like everyone listens to a catchy tune, you know, because the Mario music says something about the way the game wants to present itself, but it doesn't say very much about Mario. Right. Himself, for an ex- for example. I wonder what kind of Mar- music Mario likes. That's a. Uh, yeah, like I don't pl- plumbing tunes. I don't. I don't know what uh, what that would be. Like stomp the soundtrack to stomp. Um, just, just people hitting like, pipes. Blue man. Is group. It like the Tarantella or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would have. I'd have to assume yeah. it's like some kind of a uh, Italian uh, based kind of dance music or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> what kind of music does Mario like? Jeez. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So it's interesting talking about how the, the Walkmans and how each character has like their own individual music that kind of says something about them. Because uh, George Sanger purposely tried to do that. Um, it's something that he feels very passionately about. And if you see any of his articles or anything that he's written about, characterization and interaction between the characters and the music is one of like his favorite things. It's so important to him. Um, and there's plenty of interviews that where he talks, you know, and even kind of his book and all these different things that he's done where that's something he feels very strongly about um so it's interesting because i mean kind of getting into uh sanger a little bit from here um you know because he was uh, kind of the lead composer with this there's you know there's obviously uh he was working with team fat which is his you know he's the fat man george the fat man sanger and team fat is his like kind of group of individuals that kind of work with him you know it could be him who does the soundtrack it could be someone from team fat yeah, um, the the list of people, composers we have who worked on this game were, so George Sanger is the lead composer, and uh, the members from Team Fat that also contributed were Chris Grigg and David Lawrence, and then I believe there was also a non-Team Fat member, David Hayes, uh, who is another friend of the sound um, arranger and uh, programmer, David Warhol, so you have these four guys who wrote the music, and it was sound programmed by uh, David Warhol. So I have a bit of history on George Sanger here. And now that we've kind of like introduced him, obviously, you know, as we said, he's one of the lead composers here. Um, I mean, his background is, I mean, he is classically trained in music, obviously. Um, and his background's also in film. So, you know, as I was saying before, his idea of having these themes and ideas are really kind of in uh, his wheelhouse. It's something that yeah. he's really been trying to work with and that he felt passionately about. And it's interesting because it's also noted, and I'm, actually, this is what's so funny. I mean, George is famous enough that there's an article here in the library on the Library of Congress website about George's collection of his actual, like, you know, music and development kits that he oh, donated wow. uh, to, uh, to UT Austin. Um, so I'm using a source from <laughs> to talk about him from the Library of Congress. That's, that's pretty great. Yeah, that's it? crazy. Um, <laughs> that that says something. Um, 
you know, and I mean, it's so basically he got that all kind of happened for him. I mean, and then he's been making music for about 30 years now. I mean, he's made over or contributed to over 250 games, basically. Whoa. Um, whoa. Spanning all of that, which is crazy. You know, that's great output. And that means that what he's doing is actually really interesting. And we all agree that that you can kind of tell that sound that he has. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because like that, that film background is what helped him develop to do that. Um, you know, uh, so it's he met David Warhol or in 1983, and that's the very first time he composed for any game. Um, and then it kind of just started from there. I mean, and he used to just kind of uh, a lot of times it'd be like David would call him. They'd ask him for, uh, can I get two background music songs, two jingles and a death theme or something like that? Right. Um, and he would just, you know, can I have it by Friday? And George would say, OK, I'll get my guys on it or we'll do something. And bing, bang, boom, they produce it for him. Um, and then David Warhol, who was, uh, you know, the guy who was kind of contracting him for some of this original stuff, uh, would take it and he'd program it. So David Warhol was the programmer for a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was kind of written by George and other people into MIDI files or something that we'll work with. We'll get into that a little bit later, yeah. though. Um, so, I mean, you know, that's how George started. It, it was really just kind of working having these little kind of jobs and then sending things out to David and to other people to turn into music. He wrote almost everything he'd had on a uh, Roland MT 32 uh, sound module oh. on his uh, a MIDI workstation on his Mac plus, um, you know, and that's kind of getting into like 1988. But I mean, I'll, that's kind of where a lot of that stuff comes from. And MIDI was something to him that was kind of like the future. He believed in MIDI. Oh, wow. Um, before a lot of other people did. So, I mean, General MIDI, according to this article, the, the history here was uh, officially established as a standard and what General MIDI is today in 1991. Oh, okay. And a lot of it was something, yeah. So a lot of this was kind of what stuff that George was kind of pushing for because he kind of felt passionately about it. It's funny. Um, I, saw, I watched an interview with him on YouTube and um, mm -hmm. he seems to have a good like forward thinking mentality about like how music development is going to work. Um mm -hmm. Because there's an interview with him from 1996 where... Oh, that, yeah, that interview, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. where he's talking, they're asking about, like, what is game music going to be like in the future? And he's like, well, of course, obviously, it's just going to be, like, movie music quality. You know, like, mm -hmm. there's no barrier, you know, <laughs> the potential quality is infinite. And he was also yeah. he was also predicting, though, that you would have to get someone to just, like, compose the themes normally, like a normal music composer. And then there would have to be someone who would know how to integrate them into the games dynamically so he was already mm -hmm. looking forward to like you know you think of like shadow of the colossus and how the music yeah. like transitions into a battle theme and he's like talking about this like very enthusiastically early on like 1996 like oh yeah we're gonna have like movie quality music but it's gonna take some <laughs> you know it's gonna take like some programmer and like some creative ideas on like how to make those things sort of stitched together and flow so it's, it's pretty amazing no, and it's funny because I watched that exact same interview and I was like, he's so right. He knew he knew where it was mm -hmm. going to go. And it was like just the way he's passionate about it, like it is, his passion boils over and it's kind of amazing. Um, and he's like, it's going to be interactive. It's going to be responsive and it's going to be like movies. And, you know, it's basically what a lot of it is today. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that's I mean, and that, that's what and like kind of going into all of that in the pivot. He's kind of his magnum opus or one of what I would consider one of his magnum opus is just the seventh guest. And that was, according to the 
I'm, I'm looking at Library of Congress. That was the first General MIDI soundtrack. Oh, yeah. That was before General MIDI went on to become one of our least successful military leaders. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, wow. Because he he eventually got a very bad reputation. Gary. For I, being, I, being too stiff and... Uh, Gary, I know you're a big guy, uh, like adventure game fan and stuff. Have you played Seventh Guest? I have, yeah, and the, the soundtrack's really phenomenal. Um, oh, it's the, amazing, the, yeah. George Sanger is one of those guys where I think that uh, the name uh, doesn't get around that much on the console side, mm-hmm. but if you do PC gaming, um, you you know his work. Yeah, uh, oh yeah. The first time I started hearing his name a lot, um, there is a, a YouTube channel I like called Lazy Game Reviews, uh, and he does uh, he's really PC obsessed and covers a lot of weird DOS games from the 90s that I'd never heard of. And for a long time, I was kind of under this impression that like PC music from that time was not very good. And it was because I hadn't heard very much uh, that was very good. Mm-hmm. But uh, in his videos, even for games that are kind of bad, they were just kind of weird. Um, he kept bringing up the soundtracks and they were really good. And they were continually, he's like, yeah, another thing by, by the fat man. And I was like, the mm-hmm. fat, like, that's weird. It's like a code name. <laughs> I've never really heard that name before. Um, and then kind of looked it up and, and he's, he's just phenomenal. Um, he's done a, done a lot of really great stuff. One, one of my favorite soundtracks uh, that he's done other than the Maniac Mansion one is the one for uh, Zombies Ate My Neighbors. Oh, man. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. Which has that similar kind of like B-movie sci-fi uh, thing that he's so good at. fantastic uh, or it. that or that team you know him himself or his team whoever ended up composing it yeah, it was, it was joe mcdermott joe mcdermott it was one of the big composers on that um oh it, yeah yeah joe mcdermott contributed to a lot too i was actually going to bring him up um that that soundtrack is just you're right it's just utterly amazing like uh, it's so goofy b-movie it's just kind of like it's kitschy um it's it's out of tune it's pitchy at times it, but it's like just the right atmosphere for that game and i i've always appreciated the combination of both of them and mcdermott from team fat and sanger it's funny that you brought that up because that's that's definitely like one of my favorites <laughs> anytime a, a song should have a, a theremin in it oh, yeah. Um, yeah like team team fat's gonna do good work with like not necessarily emulating a theremin but emulating like the the style of a theremin or mm-hmm. or just the aesthetic that theremin aesthetic oh, yeah absolutely um, yeah it's interesting too because uh george is also kind of uh some of those things have finally been released on albums and george has an amazing sense of humor i don't know if you've seen any interviews with him he's he's a really funny guy so uh the, you know there was the seventh guest and then there was the 11th hour which is kind of like you know uh, they're kind of related mm-hmm. so he released an album that is the seventh guest in the 11th hour called 7-eleven mm-hmm. um you know like that, that's kind of his sense of humor it's 7-eleven um but just little <laughs> things like that i think is kind of cool uh, and I'll, I'll link uh, some of... Uh, you can still buy his albums. I'll link uh, some of them here, too, in case anyone is interested in that. Excellent. So. And so in preparing for this episode, I got to do something very cool. I got to actually talk with David Warhol. Um, it was a fantastic experience. I just talked to him on Skype earlier this week. Uh, I wanted to sort of pick his brain about the sound design of the game uh, and just you know how he worked with the NES in general. Um so it's a pre-recorded segment. I'm going to play that in a moment. Um, but before I get started, I just sort of want to point out some of the examples of sound design that come to mind when I think of Maniac Mansion, because uh, it has a very particular sound. I mean, you can compare it to a Super Mario Brothers game, a Konami game, and it just Maniac Mansion sounds very different. Um, so I came up with like four specific things that I just wanted to share. Um, one thing that comes out in his music a lot is that he often uses the triangle channel of the NES for melody. 
yeah, you know, that's just something that's not super common. So um, that's one thing that makes his music stand out. Uh, and because the triangle is often being used for melodies, that means he's going to use like, one of the pulse wave channels to make a bass sound. And he has a very particular sound that he often uses um, where it attacks with some of the different rectangle waves and then sustains on a square wave. So as like a sort of plucky sound to it, uh, where like for the first few fractions of a second, it's a different type of waveform and then it becomes a square wave afterwards. So uh, here's an example of that. So yeah, I'm sure as you guys probably recognize, like that's a super, like that's to me is like the Maniac Mansion sounds sort of. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he also has like a lot of pitchy sounds. Like they're not afraid to just like throw on lots and lots of pitch bends. Uh, I mean, I have an example here where it's just like every note attacks with a pitch bend. And last but not least, uh, he also has this cool echo effect that he uses. Uh, It's a single channel echo where it's done by, you know, because sometimes you use two channels for echo uh, effects, but instead he just does it in one channel. And it's done by using pitch bends, these repeating pitch bends, because when you go down in pitch, it sort of tricks your ear into thinking it's getting softer than it actually is. Um, So it just has like a a slow overall decay, but it really sounds like it's wavering up and down in volume. So uh, there's a little melody here that ends with the uh, echo effect a couple times. Cool. So uh, just something to keep in mind uh, when we listen to interview and uh, because all of those are referenced at some point. And um, yeah, let's give it a listen. Uh, So right now we are talking with David Warhol, a very prolific game developer and publisher who founded a company called Real-Time Associates in 1986. Since then, Real-Time Associates has developed for over 90 games for a wide variety of platforms. We're talking from the, I know you got started on the Intellivision, um, but I believe Real-Time Associates got founded on, what was the first system you developed for? Well, the real-time associates would have been the 8-bit Nintendo, and the, we've right. over a hundred over hundred titles by now, and that doesn't include the 20 or 30 or so on the Intellivision. Oh wow, yeah, you've worked for virtually every platform under the sun. Maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but not really. I mean, everything except the Jaguar. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know Sega Pico is in there even, which I, I'm going to want to pick your brain about in the future, actually. Uh huh. Um, so, I mean, and you you've also have a degree in music theory and composition, um, and so combined with your interest in software development, you've done the sound and music for a large number of games as well. That's right, yeah. I, I started off as a programmer developer for Mattel Electronics, specializing in sound, but doing mostly game design and game programming. And then after Mattel Electronics went out of business, I worked for a few years doing music and sounds for Electronic Arts, Lucasfilm Games, uh, Interplay, uh, other people. And then after a few years of doing that, got back into producing first new Intellivision titles and then uh, moving into 8-bit Nintendo and founding Real-Time Associates and uh, working on all the other consoles. Excellent. Yeah, that's amazing. You've you've worked with uh, a lot of very well-known companies. I mean, I would even go so far as to say that if you're a gamer and you've played a lot of games from the 8-bit, 16-bit era, I think it's very unlikely that you haven't played something that David Warhol has worked (laughs) on. So, Possibly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was reading an older interview you did. I believe it was with the Remix uh, 64 site. I, I remember you were saying at one point it was very satisfying to be able to walk into a computer game store and look at the shelves and say, like, see a bunch of titles that you worked on. That was, yes, that was good. 
the uh, when there were when there were software stores and and there would be thirty or forty titles out there. I like to say I'm part of the big bang of video game development in that the farther back you go into time, the more likely you are to see me. And that was a part right after the bang happened, and there was just a lot of that stuff around. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. So there were over 10 NES games that you worked on or made use of, uh, that made use of your sound drivers, the first of which came out in the fall of 1990. Um, these games included Dick Tracy, Swords and Serpents, and Total Recall. Uh, did breaking the ice on NES development have any particular hurdles or roadblocks you can recall? Not really. I, I was reverse engineering the sound chip, but it, it was a pretty straightforward device. Um, and the only hurdle would have been figuring out how to get the most out of the sound chip for what it had to offer compared to the other sound chips I had used at the time. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, because I know another developer, uh, Neil Baldwin from the UK, mentioned that they had to... You know, it wasn't like today they didn't have easy to use dev kits. Um, you know, there weren't like tools supplied from Nintendo and they sort of had to reverse, reverse engineer the tech of the NES. So I guess that was like sort of a similar experience for you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I didn't even know that Nintendo was going to allow third party development, period. And so we reverse engineered the entire NES when it came out. I was so delighted. We yanked out a ROM, uploaded it and ran it through a 6502 disassembler and said, hey, this thing runs on a 6502. And I took it from there. But uh, even the, when we did get documentation, a lot of it was in Japanese. But uh, yeah, we just, we just figured it out. So something I was wondering about, when you look at the library of uh, NES and Famicom games as a whole, it looks like most developers were Japanese and the rest were European. Um, so it's pretty rare to find American composers who worked for the NES. Uh, did you have any sense that you and the, your colleagues were outsiders in some way? Not really. We were concerned mostly with the productions that we have in hand. I didn't. I knew that there weren't a lot of U.S. developers, and that was a competitive edge, not just in the music and the sounds part, but in the game development in general. Right. Uh, but it, well, it was, wasn't something I was mindful or aware of at the time. So you worked with several platforms before working with the NES, uh, you know, including the Intellivision, as we mentioned before, but also C64, Commodore Amiga, and DOS. Uh, what was your impression of NES Audio compared to those other platforms? Mm, there were a few things that it had that I liked. The uh, sweeping, the sound sweep, the built-in hardware sound sweep is very useful to get cool effects without a lot of extra programming. Uh, each device has its own strengths, and once I got to learn a device, I would always write for the strengths of that device. The Intellivision had a great bass range. Um, well, the Amiga, of course, sampled um, uh, DOS. I came up with a, with a kind of guitar strumming sound uh, where I could play a chord just strumming it up even though it was only a single note at a time. Uh, so when the 8-bit Nintendo came out, uh, I listened to what other developers are doing in the early games and then figured out a way that I could maximize it myself or give it my own twist. And uh, in your interview with Remix 64, you mentioned that for the NES, Game Boy, Super Nintendo, and Genesis platforms, you were more of a creative and technical producer uh, that you would discuss composition styles and goals with MIDI keyboard composers uh, to arrange their compositions to fit your drivers and tone banks on each platform. Um, did all of your NES music originate from these sort of MIDI templates, or were there some cases where you created NES music without MIDI in the process? Yeah, before there was MIDI, I was developing music before there was MIDI, and pretty much work with sheet music and, and write down notes and type them in in hexadecimal notation and some are using macros or something like that. So it's a very labor-intensive process. My first uh, 8-bit Nintendo 
games would have used that technique. And about halfway through the run, I developed using my own hardware, the ability, well, there were a couple of stages. One was I would take a MIDI file that had been written, you know, three voices or what have you, and then arrange it on a sequencer, export it and re-import it into an NES using my own synth patches. So that was stage one, but eventually stage two, I connected a MIDI output to a PC, which had one of my Nintendo development boards in it. So we were able to drive an Nintendo from a MIDI keyboard uh, as if it were a synthesizer module. And that, that was great, but I didn't get that until about the end of my run of the NES. Oh, wow. Have any of the source MIDIs uh, ever been published? Oh, no. The, uh, the source MIDIs would be like three-part... Uh, piano pieces that sound nothing like the songs they ended up inside the NES. So while I might have archived the 6502 code and all the drivers uh, as they ended up being published, uh, the MIDI files are lost to time. Gotcha. Um, and so the MIDI files are just a source for the basic melodies and rhythms of the music? Exactly. They don't have all the technical stuff like the specific volume parameters or you know telling the Nintendo what duty cycle to play. Um, all, all the sound design stuff. So uh, what was the process of creating those sounds like? Uh, was it easy to test the instruments you were making on hardware? Yeah, well, I had my own development systems. We had developed our own dev kits. So uh, it was pretty easy to envision the, once the sound driver is in place, to envision different patches. Mm -hmm. I had a, probably a list of 15 or 20 commonly used patches. Once I had those developed, then it was a question of arranging the song using those patches and uh, the A section, what would be a good melody patch, which voice should use the, the sawtooth wave here or there. And uh, so developing the voices themselves, yeah, once they were in place, it just became a question of arrangement. Cool. And uh, you crafted a distinct sound for the NES, which I think stands out and is recognizable. Uh, a long time ago, I can recall randomly firing up the NSF for Caesar's Palace. Uh, you know, it wasn't a game I was familiar with. I didn't own it. And so without looking up who was involved, I immediately recognized that it was yours. Um, was there a conscious uh, decision to craft a unique sound? Like, did you want your games to sound different than other NES games? Oh, well, that's a really interesting question, and I appreciate that a lot. I hadn't consciously set out to make a style, but quite obviously because of my tools and techniques and both in the driver side and in the uh, composition slash arrangement side, I guess I would have set out uh, or would have created uh, an individual style. So that's cool that they stand out in that way. And I, I can hear in my head what that style is, but it wasn't like I uh, said, I'm going to be just like Aerosmith or something like that. I was just was making the most of the, of the hardware and, and the techniques that I used, I guess, were unique enough to, to create that style. Oh, so thank de you. definitely. Uh, yeah, and it wasn't uh, one of the reasons for this. So it's one of the aspects that stands out to me. Um, you know, it wasn't uncommon for a lot of NES games to only use the triangle channel for baselines. Uh, for example, you can look at some of the franchises like Super Mario Brothers, Castlevania, Mega Man, etc., and like you almost never see main melodies arranged for the triangle uh, in those soundtracks. So, but the triangle seems to be embraced as a common source of melody in the music you made for your NES sound driver. Uh, is that like? Um, I think maybe people were afraid of it because you couldn't manipulate the volume uh, of the triangle channel. Um, maybe people thought that was undesirable, but it seems to come up all the time as a melody in your music. Well, so the triangle wave has really no, the lower you go, the quieter it is. And it's a, 
it's a characteristic of that particular waveform that it doesn't have a beefy bass. And so the choice that other composers had, like, oh, I, I'm afraid of this wave, so I'll just put it down to the bass line where it doesn't matter, whatever. I'm a trombone player originally, and it's all about the bass as far as I'm concerned. So nice. I wanted some nice popping bass sounds. Plus, in setting orchestration, this sounds like a clarinet. So if I wanted to change the sounds of the melodic instruments, the arrangement up there. So, yeah, I, I rarely use the sawtooth wave for the triangle wave as a uh, bass line just for the lack of oomph. Right. And uh, I think Steve, my co-host, will be happy with that answer. He's We're recording the se- segment separately, so he's not here right now. But uh, he plays the tuba, so he'll be happy to know there's not another <laughs> yes. low brass player. It's so. all about the bass. The bass. The bass. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this neat echo effect that comes up in your NES music, uh, possibly debuting in Maniac Mansion. It's a single channel pulse wave echo that uses these downward pitch bends combined with like a slow overall fade in the volume. Uh, which makes it sound like the volume is jumping up and down a lot more than it actually is. Uh, it's a really cool effect. Uh, do you remember how you came up with that? I think I heard it in some game somewhere and was mystified by it and figured out quickly how to integrate it in my drivers. The first time I used it was in Dick Tracy. I'm pretty sure that that predated Maniac Mansion. Um, I might be wrong about that. But yeah, I know the sound you're talking about. It's it uh, At the release phase of the note... It starts one of those hardware sweeps down, and it starts the amp- the amplitude decay down. And then after a certain period of time, it resets the frequency to the original frequency of that note. So it is an echo. It's an echoing out uh, effect. Now, it would have been possible on other architectures just doing it in software, but it never occurred to me until I had heard it on the uh, 8-bit Nintendo that that would be a cool effect. So it's part of my signature sound, but it would have started only on the 8-bit Nintendo. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and to clarify for the listeners a little bit, like if you're making music for the NES today, it's really easy. There's this program called Famitracker that like everyone uses, and uh, it's really easy to do like pitch bends in the software. You, you can that's it, an easy effect to do. But the NES actually has like a function in the hardware, right? It's like where you can tell things like things like pitch bends to happen. Um, so I guess that's what you were taking advantage of. Yeah, it's more of a, it, it automatically added a number to the frequency to drive it down in hardware. So it wasn't as subtle as a good pitch bend that you might get on a synth wheel controller uh, or, or aftertouch uh, mm-hmm. press. But uh, yeah, and pitch bend was a lot, of, a lot of trouble to program, so I never really went for it. Uh, other than that, hardware-assisted sweeping decay. Yeah, it's really cool. So it's like the NES had a built-in function to sort of make that doable, make that easier. And um, yeah, you mentioned that you'd heard, it mm-hmm. in, you'd heard the effect in another soundtrack. I would guess it was probably something by the Fallen Brothers. Um, I, I can't be 100% sure on that, but I we did a previous episode like analyzing NES sound design, and I was trying to come up, identify like all the different types of echoes that were done. And uh, so I, I have one that I call like the single-channel pitch-bend echo, and uh, I really don't know of too many other examples aside from yours and like Tim Fallon doing it. So, um. yeah, I don't know. I think it would have been a Japanese NES title. Oh, I, interesting. I would have, would have, it escapes me. Very interesting. Now. Yeah, if it's Japanese, I'll have to do some digging around. It'd be cool to see if I can figure out what that might have been. So, <laughs> very cool. Uh, I was wondering, uh, so how was that single channel effect handled in your sound driver? Like, did you have to manually go in and add these specific volume and pitch bend instruments to every note that used it? Or was it more like an instrument that you built and could more easily summon? Yeah, it was an instrument, definitely. Each time a melody would start, it would say which instrument, which virtual instrument it was going to use, which in my case also tied it to a channel. 
I didn't do dynamic channel allocations. Uh, so it would declare which uh, synth, quote unquote, synth patch it would use. And then whenever it got to a node on command, it, the driver would take it from there. And incidentally, I never, MIDI files are way too large for an 8-bit uh, cartridge for memory mm -hmm. footprint. So my process is always read MIDI files, compress them using very specific, uh, uh, like 5-bit, five bits per note uh, instructions and then three bits per duration. So I was able to get a note. I was able to get a note into one byte instead of a MIDI command. It might be three bytes for a note on, three bytes for a note off. Oh, wow. That's six bytes per note. It's way too, too expensive. So, so I took it all the way down to be one bit per, uh, one bit per note on, note off, except for uh, some songs or some patches might have required two mm -hmm. bytes, but uh, yeah, very, very conservative with wow. memory. Uh, and the NES also offered a possible fifth channel of audio of uh, one bit sample playback, but it wasn't uncommon for it to be unused and it doesn't make an appearance in your works. Uh, was it something that you considered for use? Like, did you want to use it at any point or were, did, was it undesirable? <laughs> I never figured out how to use it. Oh man, wow. It's funny, yeah, because I've talked again with, um, you know, because there's a lot of, I guess, nerds like me now who are very interested in uh, this video game music, and we've had these discussions before, and there has been speculation that we'd wondered if the feature was kind of obtuse in some way, and if some people didn't just know how to use it, so... Yeah, I didn't know how to use it, uh, and I I don't know how it was played into the sound mixes that I was doing, mm -hmm. and... Yeah, just move right past it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of soundtracks that work that way. I mean, because many fantastic, like none of anything by Capcom, it's like the entire Mega Man series, none of that uses any um, samples. So it's a lot of the best NES soundtracks don't make use of them. So you can listen to NES music without it. It won't sound like it's missing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a not crucial channel. So, um, oh yeah, so this is an odd question I had. Um, I see you credited as composer, like with a question mark for Ski or Die for the NES. And that you also worked on other versions as well, because it was a multi-platform game. Uh, but the NES version in particular doesn't sound like your sound driver. At times, it sounds like Rob Hubbard, who is credited on it. Uh, but it also has a sort of Konami sound to it. And there's a Jun Funahashi credited as well. So uh, I have no idea who actually worked on the game. Uh, <laughs> Honestly. Yeah, me neither. It's hard for me to remember back that far. And I, if Rob Hubbard did the original then it's likely that somebody else might have taken my driver and arranged Rob's music using my driver and somehow crediting me with that. I've, I've listened to that particular piece before, and usually I can tell, oh, yeah, that's one of mine. But that one, I, I don't know that I was really part of that. Yeah, I listened closely to it. It, it really has a sort of, because uh, it was published by Konami or their American branch, um, which I'm, their name is escaping me. Um, it might have been Ultra or something like that. Um, yeah, no, it, it has a very different sound. So it's funny. It's, there's like a website that has a list of your works, but it has like a question mark next to that. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, let's just take that one yeah. off. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, as we mentioned earlier, you worked with a lot of different platforms, uh, but in particular, I was also interested in learning a bit more about your work with the Game Boy, uh, because it has a very similar sound set to the NES. Um, but it runs on a different processor and does have some different sounds and parameters involved. So, I was wondering, when going from the NES to the Game Boy, were you able to essentially copy over a lot of your sound drivers, or did you have to like basically start from scratch? Well, they were reprogrammed using the same design. Uh, the, it's, it's Z80 or 8080 or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
forget the name of the processor, but an entirely different instruction set. But I know that came after the 8-bit Nintendo, so I was able to take a couple more years of experience and recraft the driver. So I would say out of all of my drivers, I would say that uh, the Game Boy driver is my favorite. I think it's the one that was most succinct. It had the most variety in patches. Uh, and we did, uh, from day one of Game Boy, we were able to connect that directly to a keyboard. So the idea there was, as you, it wasn't polyphonic, but as you played a single melody, you could hear it on the actual Game Boy being triggered note for note, note on, note off. So you get a feel for what it was going to sound like and save that in a sequencer and then play another part. And, and yeah, it was, it was a, so we were able to really make the most out of that platform. Oh, that's very cool. It's always interesting for me to learn about sort of interfaces like that, because today it's very popular to, you know, people like to interface with these older systems now in various ways. Um, so it's cool to think that just back when you were developing for it in the day, you had an easy live control over the audio. I mean, people would love to play with that today if they could. Yeah, I've looked at resurrecting that, and there, I haven't found a good 6502 in the case of the uh, NES toolkit that would allow me to debug my drivers in whatever the current environment is. I'm getting close. Mm-hmm. And then we would still need the MIDI to device interface. But honestly, I can think of simpler architectures where uh, where it would uh, where you'd be able to well it's it's still quite possible it just needs to have the MIDI to console interface and then uh, these drivers are 90 95 percent done. In fact, the my my Game Boy driver has one routine with a conditional compile, which is where am I getting my next note from? And it yeah. would either say oh I'm getting it from the synth, or else it would say oh I'm getting it from this data stream that's coming in that I'm reading from the the uh, cartridge. So. 95% of the way there. So for Maniac Mansion and a variety of the NES games you worked on, you collaborated with the composer George Sanger. Uh, what was your working relationship like? Did you often meet in person to discuss projects you were working on? Yeah, I knew George before he was doing video game music. I guess I got him into the biz. The, uh, he, uh, My college roommate is his brother, Rick Sanger. Uh, I've known Rick for years. And every once in a while, George and his other brother, Dave, would come out and visit our campus and I got to know George that way. And as I was getting into video game music, I recognized I wasn't the most prolific composer. Uh, I, I certainly knew the music, music theory and, and the technology. But when it came time to, hey, I need some songs written, George is a musician in, in his own right and was, was doing music for uh, ads or just work for higher music. So um, early on, I, I started giving George, hey, can you write me a few songs? And he would write them and then I would incorporate them into the driver. And that's how our working relationship started there. Uh, and uh, over the years, I'm just giving him more and more stuff. And eventually, as I moved out of audio development and more into game production, full up game production, it was just like handing him my Rolodex and say, hey, go for it. I'm, you know, you can, you're more prolific than I, than I am. Go for it. That's awesome. Uh, and I know there were some other people credited for also working on the Maniac Mansion soundtrack. I had the names uh, Chris Grigg and David Lawrence come up, uh, but I'm actually not too familiar with their works or other stuff they've worked on. Exactly. George had a team of composers called Team Fat. So when you got a project from George, it was either his original composition or else a couple of those other guys. Uh, and you might even be able to tell their styles. I, I probably could fish it out. But... Those guys, Team Fat did about half the music, and then another guy, Dave Hayes, did the other half of the music. Um, Dave Hayes is a jazz funk fusion keyboardist, 
that I'd known for 30 years as well. And, and I loved his sound. So I've collaborated with Dave Hayes on a few projects as well where I got his music. So, yeah, that's, uh, it's Team Fat and Dave Hayes on Maniac Mansion, a great team. A lot of music in that project. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and as you mentioned, from different styles, you can definitely hear it throughout the soundtrack. Uh, I feel like if you have like a lot of almost like, I don't know if atonal is the right word, but a lot of like dissonance and chromatic lines, I mm -hmm. feel like that's probably George Singer's style. Um, then you have these other tracks that are a lot more... Um, I want to say like relaxed classical style and it sounds like different composers yeah. giving different themes to the characters. So uh, that's yeah. fantastic. Um, and I was wondering, do you have any favorite tracks from the Maniac Mansion soundtrack? Uh, Maniac Mansion has to be uh, my favorite project that I've worked on for the diversity of music and the, and the end result of the, of the soundtrack. Uh, the, the project itself was a conversion of the Commodore 64 over to the 8-bit Nintendo and the Commodore 64 does not have wall to wall music. So we were contracted and got nine-tenths of the way done with the game. And then uh, the publisher was like, hey, where's the music? All 8-bit Nintendo games have music wall-to-wall. -wall, and well, we weren't hired to do it, and it wasn't part of the original design. Well, we've got to have music. So I got an extension to the contract to bring in composers to, to do the music, which is one of the reasons why we had such a large team to get it all done. Uh, but uh, of those songs, uh, just love the... oh. And they were never named. The songs had no names oh. at the time until like five years later, LucasArts called up and said, hey, we're filing for copyright for these things. We need the names of the songs. I was like, they don't have names. He said, make them up. So <laughs> after the fact, we made up names for the songs. But uh, one of the, the lead character themes, it sounds a little bit like uh, the boys are back. And we call that when the boys are still back. And that was one <laughs> of, of um, Dave Hayes' songs. I loved the Compu Nerd, which is the nerd theme, and that's Dave Govett. And that oh, da 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 do da 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 dee, ba da 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 do 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 do. It's it's almost there. It's just like kind of you can kind of dance to it, just neatly uh, composed and I'd say executed. And then and then the other one I liked is the punk rocker song, which it was just kind of like a screaming da 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 And the name of that song I came up with was. No, no, never, never, well, maybe sure, okay. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I had no idea about these song titles. I know most yeah, people, yeah. most people if, if, in lieu of like an official title that, you know, if people aren't aware of it, they always right. just call it Dave's theme or, you know. Dave's theme, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Dave's theme was written by Dave, so that's cool. And Oh, uh, oh that's funny. right. Dave, Dave, uh, Dave Hayes. And yeah, those, those song names don't exist anywhere except in one document that's filed with the Library of Congress or something. Oh, okay. That would explain why I've never seen them then. That's really yes. funny. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. No, I, I think it's funny, too, that you, there was that discussion. That discussion actually took place saying that, you know, NES games have music throughout the soundtrack, so you need to put music in. Because I grew up with uh, an Amiga computer uh, when I was a kid, and it wasn't that uncommon. Just like the C64, you mentioned you have, might have a title screen theme maybe a, a game over theme, but there's like no background game music throughout a lot of those games. So it's funny that someone recognized saying like, no, NES games have music nonstop. So you, you have to add music to the whole soundtrack. That's really funny. Yeah. I, I believe I'm credited with the first ever wall to wall video game cartridge. At least Keith Robinson of Intelligent Productions credits me that way oh, uh, wow. for, Thund for Thunder Castle, which from the moment the game resets to the moment you yank the cartridge out, it's got music playing entirely. It's classical music in this case. 
but it's also on a, on a tiny Intellivision cartridge uh, with hardly any memory. Uh, that's, I knew that it was possible because uh, I'd done it on the Intellivision, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until the 8-bit Nintendo that I was getting those requests for music that played throughout the entire game, which was tough because you want to make, you know, you need, you need to make a theme so that you don't want to just turn off the volume because they didn't have the ability to, they didn't have the ability to music on and off in, in those days, just was always on. So it was a challenge to make something catchy enough and rich enough that you could hear it thousands of times over. Wow, that's, that's pretty amazing, actually, because... Um... You know, I, I've I've recognized that there are you know earlier games, C sixty four, etc., that don't have music throughout. But I've never actually thought about like what's the first game to have music throughout. So, um, yeah, I, I'm really impressed by that. Actually, that's amazing. Um, and so there's uh, an unused track of music that was also found in the game's data. Um, do you have any recollection of what that track was intended for by any chance? No, I hadn't heard that since, of course, the game was released. And I listened to that, and I'm trying to scratch my head, and I don't know if, if it's possible that in the Commodore 64 version there was one more character that didn't make it into the 8-bit Nintendo. I'm not sure about that. That would explain it. Or there might have been some other situation or room that you get in. But no, I, I, I hear it. It's, it's an awesome song. It's not like, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't sound good enough, so I'm not going to trigger it. It would have been fun to put it in in an Easter egg, but yeah. I don't know what that was for. Yeah, because that's one of my favorites as well. You know, after I discovered it, it was from put into the Nintendo sound file. You know, someone ripped all the music out of the ROM. Um, so that's how it was found. And uh, yeah, that track is really cool. And it's it's funny. There's speculation in the YouTube comments about like where it would have fit into the game. So it's, it's, <laughs> Controversy, right. mystery, X-Files. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, everyone has their own idea where it could have fit into the game. So that's that's really funny. Um, and I was also wondering, do you ever look back on your composition or arrangements and think about things you might have done differently? Uh, not really. As, as technology matures, I recognize there might have been things that I could have done in earlier drivers that I didn't, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like, oh, dang, I wish I would have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say the only thing that I would have done differently would have been on the business side where I, wasn't, I was so passionate about what I was doing. Uh, but I wasn't figuring out how long it would take to do. So I just figured out a, a fee that seemed right, given the relative size of the budget of the piece. And I always figured that, that audio was like 5 or 10% of a budget, never more. So had I priced my services a little higher, it might have allowed me to do more of them or stay in that aspect of the business. So the only thing I might have done differently was on the business side of it, figuring out the amount of time or the value of the service. Mm-hmm. But as far as the technology goes, no, I was really happy with what I was able to do at the time. And I think that a lot of these things were uh, pretty far ahead of is the fact that we were connecting the hardware directly to MIDI keyboard devices 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And and it, it seemed like, hey, yeah, we could do that. And, and it wasn't until 20 years later I was going, wait a second, how the heck did I do that? I can't do that now. And I did it 20 years ago. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. That, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks for so much for participating in this interview. Um, it's amazing to be able to, you know, Maniac Mansion is one of my favorite NES soundtracks. So um, to be able to pick the brain of someone who worked on it is just uh, an amazing opportunity. No, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much. I'm always delighted to share. And, and I'm, I'm pleased that people are interested in what was happening in that, in that generation of music stuff. I'm glad to be able to contribute. Excellent. Thank you.
Yeah, you, you know, Patrick, if uh, if you don't do anything else with your life, which I, I sincerely believe you will, um, <laughs> you got uh, David Warhol to say all about that bass and then sing the song for a moment. <laughs> yes. So if if the um, if, if if nothing else happens, it, it you you've you've done that. Yes. I, so thank you. <laughs> the uh, with, I love uh, I, I really like that interview and and one of the things with the uh, the bits that you were talked about before the interview and, and he kind of elaborates on um, those sounds that he creates for the soundtrack and this plays into the composition too, which which we'll we'll talk about a little bit later. I think um, helps the. Uh, NES sound chip emulate instruments mm-hmm. in a way that is really interesting. So like that little bit where like the, the beginning, the little pitch bend at the beginning of every, uh, every note in, uh, in Sid's theme there makes it sound like a guitar. Yeah. Like little, like, you know, tiny, like little hammer-ons, you know, exactly. uh, that are, that are going on. And, uh, it's really interesting. The interview is interesting to hear, um, can some of the technical process of how that was done and also just to know i think that, that there's a there's a a temptation with any kind of video game music or any kind of score to kind of assume or think that everything is happening on accident or automatically mm-hmm. uh but when you when you lay something out like this you really learn like oh especially with the technology at the time every one of these things is a choice and yeah. everything took a lot of work to actually make that sound absolutely uh happen yeah that's part of why i love like analyzing video game old video game music because it's it's like very simple at a first glance, but when you really dig into it, you realize that like a lot of people put on like put a lot of care into what they did, and like there's a lot of hands-on like fine tuning and and care. So, um, mm. yeah. No, I, I thought it was interesting too. Well, the thing that stuck out to me is the fact that um, you know, and we kind of always uh, speculate like why some people didn't use the DPCM, and he oh yeah, just flat out said that you know he didn't know how to use it. And I wonder if, I mean, it sounded like he was reading, like, you know, they're translating all kinds of different uh, sources to try to figure out how to write for it. Yeah. Uh, for the, for the 2A03. Um, but I just think it's really interesting because that might be something that other, if we start talking to a lot of other people, they might have the same idea about it. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, and so uh, just to hear someone flat out say that it, it's, it's kind of, I thought that was really fascinating. And from my perspective, you know, just thinking about again like it's an extra channel that wasn't used and you know why wasn't it used to hear someone just say well we didn't use it because we didn't know <laughs> yeah. we didn't know what yeah. how to mm-hmm. use it yeah it's, um, it's pretty it, amazing it's kind of great yeah it feels like it speaks to a, a different kind of time where there could be secrets or there could be information like that <laughs> yeah. that's like you maybe knew about it but didn't really know about it mm-hmm. or couldn't figure it out and that was okay whereas as you know opposed to now when you know we have the the world sum of human knowledge in our pocket at any given time exactly um you know, so like, even though I don't, uh, I mean, there, there's ways around that now, but if, if this had, if that had been recorded nowadays, you could look that up probably and get that information very easily, but everything moves slower. And that kind of is, that's interesting. And I think there's a quality that's lost, even though, uh, you know, like great, great art is created out of restrictions and mm-hmm. created out of mm-hmm. limitations. Like on paper, it seems like, oh, having that extra channel would be automatically a success, but having to kind of move around that and, and get around that probably resulted in part of why the, the soundtrack is so interesting and, and his other work is so interesting. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, it's not like I even really miss the samples because, um, mm-hmm. in samples are primarily used for drum sounds. Um, but he has mm-hmm. like, I was looking at like, as analyzing how like the snare drum and bass drum sounds were made and like, th- they just have this long sort of fade to them. Like they're, they're very abrasive in a way. Like they're. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're big sounding in a way that a sample probably wouldn't have sounded on the NES. Hi, 
I, I, I wouldn't trade the drum sound on the soundtrack for anything. Yeah. Like it, it is, it is, it is so, uh, so crunchy and kind of, um, aggressive yeah. in a way that again, like emulates the type of music that it, it's supposed to for the, for the individual tracks that feature it. So yeah, we're going to take a listen to the soundtrack now. Uh, here is the opening theme. That just makes me laugh. It's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, that that track is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's amazing. I love that it's the first uh, first thing that pops through when you get the the sound effect of the meteor crashing. Mm-hmm. And then the, the you know the drum comes in on like the next beat, mm-hmm. as if the you know the kind of whole world is playing to this this song, and and something that is true of all the songs on the soundtrack. So I'll try not to beat this like, too much of a, a dead horse, mm-hmm. but like there's kind of like a, a twitchy lurching, oh yeah, uh, kind of element to the to the songs where like the to you know before a melody comes up, I think something will will kind of climb up from deeper than you think like a lower tone than you think uh-huh. uh, to get up there. And, and that's really obvious a couple times later, but it's obvious here as well. It's like, it's right out on, on kind of the front street. Yeah. And I, I love how the soundtrack embraces dissonance. I mean, there's just like those, mm-hmm. I, I would call them, I don't know if atonal is the right word, but there's like those sort of atonal or chromatic fills in the middle of the song where it's just like, uh, I don't know. It's like almost very ugly sounding, but that's what makes it sound so good though. Uh, true. Uh, in a situation like that, if, if someone's playing something that's dissonant and it's purposeful, you'll like it. And I feel like it's purposeful. It's not like someone yeah. who doesn't know how to make a melody is doing that. It's someone who's doing it on purpose because they think it's funny or they think it, it creates an atmosphere. So those kind of like playful kind of like pulses that kind of do different things <laughs> yeah. in quotes um, <laughs> are funny to us. Like we get it. And like the, the, the intention of the composer is actually there. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's exactly what, 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 why it sells it. You know, you called it playful, which I think is the great way to describe it. It, it sets up mm-hmm. the atmosphere of the game where uh, it's a game you can potentially die in. Uh, I mean, like mm-hmm. if you have to really screw up. There's like a very set way to do it. Um, but you know, the, the game has like the sense of like a threat throughout, like you can get caught, something's mm-hmm. bad going to happen to you. But when you get caught and locked in the basement, it's like, oh, I'm going to go call your parents now. Mm-hmm. So it's like a very, like, uh, you know, it's, it's a very funny, whimsical, uh, adventure. So, mm-hmm. and, and next we'll be listening to Dave's theme.
Yeah, so that is uh, Dave's theme, and that's one where they were inspired by Thin Lizzy's uh, The Boys Are Back in Town. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you can hear, I love it, it opens up with like the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, you know, it's like someone shredding away on guitar, um, you know, and uh, it, it's something that gives uh, Dave uh, his character. He's, he's the... He's he's the rocker, but he's not the uh, he's not too punk. Yeah, ba- based on uh, on Ron Gilbert, actually, like the Davis. So that oh. jacket is is Ron Gilbert's jacket uh, that he has in, in the game. Um, I, lo- I love the um, the drum sound in that song. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll do like one thing that's a generality of all the the kid songs. Now that we're getting into them, is that uh, I love video game music that is composed like pop music. Mm-hmm. Um, where like there are really distinct kind of choruses and bridges and the like. Uh, that's something I react to a lot, uh, react to really well. And the, the soundtrack is great for that. Uh, the other thing is that the drum sound that's in this song, um, it always reminds me of, I don't know if you have heard this anecdote about Devo mm-hmm. uh, before that when um, the drummer uh, auditioned for Devo, they made him uh, drum along with one hand behind his back. Oh, I did not know so that. So he couldn't, he could not ride the, the cymbal the entire time or could not ride the hi-hat. And, and keep the beat that way. And the, the drum sound in these songs reminds me of that because it is this kind of um, non-steadiness, like uh, this kind of wheel and cog yeah. um, kind, kind of sense to it. Uh, you know, the, the really, really big, you know, as opposed to just a standard, you know, one and three uh, kick and snare kind of thing. Right. And, uh, and I really love it. Um, you know, that, that was a lot of words just to end with. I really love it. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I this is this is yeah. <laughs> uh, this is my favorite uh, favorite song on the soundtrack. This was my ringtone for years, um, where it it goes into that you know during the guitar solo from this was my ringtone for a really long time. Oh, fantastic! All right, so uh, next up would be Razor's theme. That might be one of the uh, best guitar solos uh, in NES music. It's great. It's fantastic. It's really it's, good, yeah. The song, again, it sets up her character perfectly. I mean, her name is Razor. Uh, so based on that name alone, uh, yeah, the song fits. It's, it's extremely punk, and then it gets a bit shreddy in the middle. I, I love it. Yeah. The, the the beginning, the the vocal line, for lack of a, a better word, the, the da 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 <laughs> yeah. Like, you can, you can imagine, like, you know... Uh, time life documentary that's like 1981 at cbgb's oh yeah and and it's you know it's 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 like uh you know david byrne going you know it uh along to to that song yeah um it's perfect next up is bernard's theme Thank you. 
the echo there is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Bernard's theme is probably my favorite of the character themes. Uh, I just love how... I don't know what to call it. It sounds it sounds almost like a Devo song, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. It's very quirky. Uh, it, it's As you heard in the interview, as David Warhol was saying, like, you could almost dance to it. Uh, maybe. You know? It, it's kind of like... It, it's, it has a groove to it. It has a drive to it. Um, but there's just these odd, dissonant chords that pop up every now and again, and these weird, quirky grooves. And uh, it's just... It's an amazing song. There, there are a bunch of pauses that last slightly longer than you think they will, which gives yeah. it that kind of lurching, lurching back to life feeling, uh, you know, that, that uh, I was talking about that a lot of these songs have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, even though I can't place like a specific Devo song, it, it captures like the aesthetic very well. Like it's not, it's not riffing on a Devo melody that I can think of. Um, but I picture like their music video for satisfaction and like the guy sticking the fork in the toaster and dancing around. Like it, it, oh, it, yeah. it could be like set to this music, uh, yeah. And next up is Sid's theme. So something that, that comes to mind listening to Sid's theme, uh, I was just thinking of this now actually. So he's kind of like the hipster of the group in a way. Um, he he's wearing mm -hmm. he's wearing shades, he's dark clothes. He's like looks like maybe he's a little too cool for the group. Uh, and the music uses lots of like long sustained notes, like whole notes and half notes. Uh, I feel like it's very fitting in a way because if the, there's like the guy who's just kind of cool hanging out, like you're you don't want to have like a really harsh, fast moving melody. Um, so to have like this kind of slower melody and sometimes like it's kind of behind the beat like the notes like attack on an offbeat Yeah um, So I just I think like the the music fits the image of the character very well Yeah, I always think of like something like joy division or something Something like yeah. that with with, with Sid and is, is kind of aesthetic. I mean the song doesn't sound that much I mean, there's a lot of joy division. That's like way angrier than that But mm -hmm. there's a little bit of kind of like a a love will tear us apart Driving forward, you know, yeah, uh, kind of sound to it. Yeah, absolutely all right, so uh, I guess next up is Wendy's theme. It's funny, like, isn't this everyone's like least favorite song from the game? <laughs> I I can't stand it. Uh, yeah. it's, I have a problem. I've mentioned this to Steve before. I just I, it's not that I don't like all music that's happy. I definitely like some happy music. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I like sad, unhappy things. So um, you know, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is this is the in preparing for the episode. This is the first time I listened to this song all the way through, and and I figured out why this song is the weakest one on the soundtrack, mm-hmm. um, and I would say even weaker than the loop from Loon, um, but on the record. <laughs> but the the reason why I think is that it has so little identity uh, because I mean the idea is that Wendy listens to classical music because she's a nerd, but this just ends up sounding like um, like more robust Dragon Warrior music. Like a, a kind of medieval or classical pastiche in NES with the NES sound palette is something that we've seen in a lot of different games. Um, and that's what it reminds me of. It's like, oh, I'm at a castle in Dragon Quest. Uh, it doesn't feel unique well, to me. Well, then actually, maybe the song works then. Because now that I think about it, like I kind of never wanted to play as her because of that theme. I feel like she didn't have like the cool mm-hmm. music. Um, but if she's supposed to be like the nerdy classical character, it's kind of like they they gave a song that was very fitting to that personality in a way um oh it, it totally fits it's just that um it doesn't it comes off as classical music but like classical the rest of these songs like i can't think of other nes uh, games where like there there is a, a like a punk song in them yeah like, like razor song mm-hmm. but i can think of other nes games where there's like a classical music song so it just feels a little bit less like a little less personality um, and it's a shame too, because if you don't play as Wendy, you don't get the funniest ending of the game, uh, where the the meteor gets his his manuscript published, which is <laughs> one of my favorite jokes <laughs> in, in video games. Period. Um, he just wants to get his book published because that's hard, and uh, you you get that happening, and and he no longer wants to kill any teens. Yeah, it, it's it's funny too. Something you were saying about hearing classical sounding, you know, that not being uncommon at all in other NES music, so it has less identity. Uh, I feel like that's what the bulk of the original Japanese port of Maniac Mansion mm-hmm. sounds like. Like that whole soundtrack mm-hmm. sounds like Wendy's theme, essentially. Ugh. So, which I'm sure is by coincidence. Like I highly doubt they had, uh, you know, even looked like at the, you know, I'd be that's something I should double check actually. Um, if they'd even seen the Japanese port before making theirs, I think it's very unlikely. Um, because mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's so different. That game is just it's you know completely different team. It just really does not have like anything in common uh, with the American you know NES version. Uh, you know, aside from being a port of the same game originally, but it just the end result is so different. So, uh, anyways, next up is Jeff's theme. Yeah, so it's funny listening to this again after doing the interview with David Warhol. Um, I, I just think it's really interesting uh, to think about how he didn't use, uh, you know, that programming pitch bends was like kind of a hassle, so he didn't really do that for his sound driver. 
and that instead opted to utilize the hardware sweeps of the NES. And uh, Steve, I don't know like what your perspective is on this, because like when I play around in Famitracker, um, mm -hmm. it's just so easy to use like pitch bends in the effect column uh, mm -hmm. without using the hardware effect. Um, so yeah. it's like something I've never played with when I was like toy around with NES music. Um, it always seemed like that weird feature to me. It's just like uh, this uh, almost built-in uh, hardware pitch bend. And uh, so listening to like all of the drum sounds now, I think those drum sounds actually sound great. So um, you got a lot out of like, a, I guess essentially this built-in effect. It, it's interesting because it's like something that's only in the 2AO3, um, you know, it, and you can do these nice sweeps. And it's kind of something that, I, I feel it's underutilized. Like what, what's interesting about the, the soundtrack as a whole is some of the tricks that Warhol uses when he programs this are more like what I would do today than what a lot of the Japanese guys did then. Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of interesting because like a lot of these pitch bends and using the hardware sweeps was, I, I mean, it's I'm trying to think of like other Japanese soundtracks that use hardware sweeps. And I think they really used it for sound effects. Yeah, I was going to say, um, like, the jump, yeah. or the coin collect in uh, Mario, I think as a hardware, not a sweep, but a hardware, uh, f like, volume fade, hardware volume yeah. envelopes. Yeah, you see that in sound effects, but not in the music as much. Yeah, and so I think that's kind of interesting. That That's like, you know, um, just imagine, and, you know, it's also kind of just saying a small tangent, but as Warhol was also saying that he didn't know many other guys who were from the U.S. who were composing um, and it's weird because, like, you had the Euro scene with all those guys kind of composing, um, you know, and making their own kind of sound, the Japanese scene. And then, like, you know, the legacy kind of just is, you know, of what we can call J American, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, 8-bit music. Oh, it's this totally – this. It's this totally messed up yeah. sound. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, but that's our legacy, you know. And I, I feel that it's great that we actually brought something that those other guys didn't. Um, you know, and the fact that like culturally or whatever, we picked something that other guys didn't do uh, and that like we had our own sound, even though it's a smaller scene and a smaller publishing group overall, um, there was a sound that's so distinctive to David Warhol's programming. Um, and the, the hardware sweeps is, I think, a big part of it. And, and that single channel echo that we've heard on some of the other tracks is just, oh, it's amazing. Oh, and uh, so continuing on, next up is Michael's theme.
yeah, crap. Before, I guess I said Bernard's theme was my favorite character theme, but I take that back. I forgot uh, how much I love Michael's theme. I'd say this is my favorite uh, <laughs> character's theme. It's amazing. Michael's theme is very close to to being in the running uh, for me. I think that, that the middle, like the drone part of it, goes on a little long for me. I love when it, we come out of the drone. Um, that's one of my favorite things. But there's kind of, it feels a little like it's searching for a chorus uh, uh, to me. But the the actual kind of uh, the verse part of it, the funky part of it is, is really incredible. Um, I wonder on the interview, we talk about um, the different... Uh, uh, team members who he had on this and he had the one gentleman um, the last person who he said was like a, a funk fusion uh, David Hayes mm-hmm. who's a, a funk fusion keyboardist and I wonder if the- since he was on the composition team for this I wonder if he's responsible for this given that this sounds like funky fusion yeah I, I, I would think so that's interesting we'll have to double check we'll uh, add that to the show notes if we can find out who was the specific composer for this track Oh, and so I'm looking at the YouTube comments uh, that I'm, you know, using to listen to the track right now. Uh, One person says, this is my dad's favorite Maniac Mansion song. (laughs) So. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so. uh, Dads and grads love it. (laughs) I want to meet that dad. Dad's approved, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, dad. It's like, like see, moms like cereal, and dads like certain maniac mansion songs that's how you can tell if you're a mom or a dad with this online quiz do you prefer kicks or do you prefer uh michael's theme (laughs) yeah next up uh we got the edison family and tentacle theme sweeps man jeez mm-hmm. I love this section so much yeah that mercy beat like the hand claps The trilling kind of, again, uh, theremin-style sound at the beginning of that um, works really well with the way that the game edits uh, this music, like the way where it appears in the narrative. So this music only plays when you cut away to the Edisons. And this can happen at random times because Maniac Mansion, one of the reasons it's remarkable as a game is that you have the sense that the world is moving around you. Um, So you're just kind of walking around and you're maybe jamming out to, to Michael's theme or what have you and then all of a sudden it's a wah, 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 you know just like huge uh huge trilly high-pitched sound as you you're you're kind of swept away to a different part mm-hmm. of uh, of the the house to see what's going on it's gonna get that shock and awe yeah it's it works very well in the context of the game and uh something i really love musically about it in that sort of b section or whatever you'd call it it has this very like offbeat groove uh this bass line is like riding the offbeats and they like add another layer of offbeats on top of that where like the triangle in the second half does like offbeat 16th notes landing on like the E's and the U's, And it's just like, it's just this 
like layered uh offbeat groove that's uh it's it's like really dense and yeah anytime you're riding off the beat like that that's really catches my ear so it's crazy too you mentioned the triangle like and kind of as uh, uh warhol was saying in the interview using the triangle like this is the one of the soundtracks that i can listen to where i don't mind the high triangle mm-hmm. um and there's something about the way he craps it that I, i'm not bothered by the fact that one we we all know the high triangle is kind of pitchy yeah um and just kind of like the way he uses it, it it's and knowing that the triangle has no volume control it's used in such a way that it's, it's not as overpowering yeah and i thought that was really interesting like especially i mean throughout the entire soundtrack but especially in there the triangle actually sounds like it's behind everything yeah and it's very rare when i'm thinking the triangle's behind something it's usually kind of like here's the triangle like it's the most that's the loudest thing you definitely know the triangles on or off right um you know and so i think that's very impressive and that track especially has some moments in there where it's the triangle takes a back seat and it's done very well yeah i think it's done by Mm -hmm. using kind of like louder volumes from the pulse waves Mm -hmm. uh you know so to you know make it so that the triangle fits nicely yeah because as david warhol mentioned in the interview you can sort of hide its volume when you're using it for lower pitches um mm-hmm. it, which is why it's one of the reasons why it's used for baseline so often we think um but yeah he brings it up to the upper registers and has it sound great in the music so yeah i love that yeah absolutely uh next up is the uh piano jingle So, yeah, I mean, listening to that out of context, like, by itself, you know, it's certainly not my favorite song from the soundtrack, but it's a real treat in-game, because uh, there's only two characters who can actually play the piano. Uh, I think it's Razor and Sid, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty badass that, like, the, um, you know, the punk person, like, you know, probably grew up t- t- taking piano lessons, apparently, and then, re- like, yeah. became rebellious as a teenager. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah, it's it's cool to, that sort of interaction with the game um feels special because you can choose different characters and you could easily not have them in your group um so that's something like you could be playing the game through a second time meaning like oh i didn't i didn't see this before because i couldn't interact with the piano before well and it's incorporated into one of the end games like it is a a puzzle piece that you need to get one of the endings oh that's right it's been a long Um, time since i've actually played through to completion yeah yeah you can you can make a make the demo tape. Um, I love that. Uh, I love again going back to that diegetic music. Like the music earlier in one of the earlier songs, we talked about how dense it is, and that's one hundred percent true. Uh, this is not so dense, and that's because it is being played by two hands on a piano. Mm-hmm. So you know it's it's you know two two tracks rather than than a, a whole suite and using all of the tools. Um, just kind of going into that really neat way that like the music in this game comes from the world of the game, other than the intro and that Edison theme. Yeah. Which are both both used a kind of cinematic effect, yeah, in the game, and and next up we have the theme for three guys who publish anything.
Yeah, while we were just listening to that, we commented that, like, every now and again there's, like, a deeper, like, crack in the noise channel that's, like, uh, I think that's, like, supposed to emulate, like, maybe, like, a whip crack in the music. It sounds great. Yeah, that, that's a, that, that is a funny song. Yeah. Like, that's not something I'm going to, like, walk around and, and jam to, you know, right. like, a, <laughs> and enjoy for pleasure, but it fits it fits the, the tone of what they're doing really, really well. Um, it's not, it's, it's kind of a, a different, uh, different composer and everything, but it's got the same kind of like, you can tell that Ron Gilbert has this affection for, uh, kind of, uh, you know, salesman, like greasy salesman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you oh, look yeah. at this and you look at Stan in uh, monkey Island Oh mm-hmm. yeah, and, and the, the kind of music that comes along with this, this, you know, greasy huckster kind of thing. Okay, so we keep mentioning the diegetic audio uh, in the soundtrack, and I, this is my favorite example of that. This is uh, the Tentacles demo tape. This just belongs to this kind of hilarious subplot or event where the tentacle, uh, you know, um, makes a demo tape and uh, this is what he comes up with. So um, I just like the idea that when someone was writing this track, it's like, okay, we're tasked with coming up with a song. uh, You know, what would a tentacle make? Like, what is tentacles music? And uh, yeah, it's it's a ridiculous track. I love it. Mm. Yeah. And and it's just a. This this has very little like one of the cool things about this game and examining the soundtrack is that like this game is about creative people and and has creative people and musicians in it. Uh, so there's this weird kind of metafictional layer to it. Like not only does it have that characterization, but like oh this like these people want to make music as well. You know like yeah. it, it's it's a game that is about that uh, you know and about the creative process in a weird way. Um, or you could you could make that argument. Mm-hmm. And it, it, this is a neat expression of that. Absolutely. Everyone just wants to make it. And I love that it belongs to, I mean, the tentacle is just such a great character as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, I love that that character gets to express itself through that piece of music. I just, I've always loved that. Mm-hmm. All right. So next we'll have the, uh, the talk show theme. So it's the uh, talk show theme there. I like um, 
the uh, use of the triangle there for melody again. I know it's something we've been talking about before, but it's, it's very elegant uh, sounding there. Just very pleasant sounding. This reminds me of the um, the jingle TV jingle theme where it's like, I'm not going to listen to that as I'm walking around, yeah, yeah. but it, it serves its purpose. Like it sells an aesthetic. Yeah, oh, definitely. So we have a few like various uh, jingles uh, remaining in the soundtrack here. There's one for a skipping record, and there's also a couple uh, sound effects from the uh, arcade room. Yes, you heard a little da 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 in there. Yeah. <laughs> I like how like they're they're <laughs> referencing the to- like songs with like the least amount of notes you can like or you know the most amounts. Yeah, it's like a name that away. tune. Yeah, so it's just like here's the little yeah. Indiana Jones theme. And next up is the ending credits. familiar melodies um from earlier in the soundtrack um but Mm -hmm. closes out i love there's like that more dissonant triangle line it it, they stuck in there uh you know just Mm -hmm. putting variations uh on the theme you know as you would do for something like that so uh yeah it's a nice track and uh last but definitely not least uh there's this one track of music um that you can find that's actually unused in the game um people found it when they extracted the the music out of the rom data um so yeah, uh, George Singer actually left a comment explaining where this track came from in the game. Because uh, before he left it, like mm-hmm. everyone was speculating. Uh, and earlier in the interview with David Warhol, I was unaware that he actually clarified uh, where it comes from in the game. So uh, mm-hmm. he says it's the theme music for Dr. Fred. And uh, there's another comment from someone else. I think it looks like they might have talked to Singer about it more. Um, mm-hmm. Because he's saying that uh, the music was supposed to go at the very end of the game when Dr. Fred activates the self-destruct sequence to blow up the mansion. Oh, okay. That makes perfect so, sense, yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that's interesting that it would have its own special theme. So, yeah, let's, let's give it a listen.
man, I love that track. You know, it's unused, but it's... I love that track so much, Easily man. one of my favorites oh. from the games. It has, like, I keep gushing about, like, those atonal fills and lines that they stick in there, and, like, this one mm-hmm. just it really embraces it, and it's amazing sounding. The, it makes perfect sense if that's what they were going to do for the, the song as well, uh, to have it be the, the, you know, the kind of the mansion is going to blow up, and you have a limited amount of time. Like, the, the bass line in the first part, or the, the verse, kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of has that, like, kind of, like, countdown-y... Not like a Mission Impossible, but kind of that uh, uh, time's running out mm-hmm. theme to it, and mm-hmm. then the the music kind of kind of starts blowing up and getting more chaotic. Yeah, it's very as you, as you move. Yeah, it's very chaotic and very climactic, which is what makes it perfect. Yeah. Too. So I wonder if it was ever meant to loop. I wonder if the amount of time that the track has is about how much time you were supposed to have to to put in huh. the code or what have you at I the wonder end, how f- because it just keeps escalating. Do you remember since yeah. it's been a while since I've played through the game? Do you remember what music plays during that part of the game? I, it might just be the Edison music. I don't think I don't think it's uh, different. Um, I think it's just the Edison music because you're down in the uh, the lab. It'd be pretty incredible if yeah. I don't know how technically feasible it is, but if it's possible to rom hack the game to put that track back in, uh, that'd be yeah, that'd be mm-hmm. awesome. That'd be interesting to see like how that works or if it if it would really work. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, people listening to this podcast, if that's if rom hacking is your thing, or you know, people who do that, uh, yeah, find out if that's feasible. That would be awesome. If- if ROM hacking is your thing, stop giving Mario a penis. <laughs> whatever, yeah. Whatever you oh, God, I always, always, when I think of bad ROM hacks, the first thing that always comes to mind is like naked Super Mario Brothers. It's like, yep. I think of like a, a ROM collection, like someone being like, oh, this is a great place to get ROMs. There's like 20,000 NES ROMs. And it's like, oh, no, no. Like there were, yeah. there were not nearly that many NES games, you know, so you know it's going to be full of like weird duplicates and ROM hacks and like incredibly lazy rom hacks um yeah (laughs) what what audience is that for like i just like this game i really wanted to see what would happen if these guys were just running in the buff yeah i don't know mario as a gay dude i can personally say uh that's definitely not for me that's not you know uh yeah naked mario rom hacks not uh the least bit uh enticing <laughs> it's, it's terrible yeah, i don't think that's for, it's for anybody it's for no one it, yeah. it's nothing to do with who you're if you're attracted to mario as as like a guy he's 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 like six you know he's 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 20 pixels like yeah there's there's nothing there see see i wouldn't nothing put this there. past like fans or something to do something like that there true, we go true yeah, yeah. oh god oh. uh yeah <laughs> um this so, is getting edited out yeah, right? yeah. uh probably <laughs> probably yeah we'll see Maybe and stick it in the outtakes later. Um, yeah, just, just bleep what he when he said fans bleep the words. So whatever the audience is listening to will be like the worst possible thing in their imagination. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, and so um, even though that wraps up the Maniac Mansion soundtrack, I think it's worth noting that. Uh, if, if you're a fan of the soundtrack, that you can actually look up other NES soundtracks by David Warhol and George Sanger um, if you're itching for more. Um, because, you know, you can find other tunes that share George's compositional stylings, as well as, you know, of course, they share the same unique sound design that David Warhol brings to the table. So um, I'll link to some more examples in the show notes, but I want to quickly share two examples here uh, just to show how similar uh, they are in sound. So uh, first up is Rad Gravity.
As you can hear, it's another example of that really boisterous, uh, over-the-top uh, sound uh, and compositional style um, that just, you know, really rings of Maniac Mansion. And, you know, perhaps sounding a little bit differently than Maniac Mansion here is the Swords and Serpents music. Uh, it has more of like a relaxed, dungeon-crawling, uh, sort of medieval style going on. Um, but right before it loops, it does break out into a funky function again, which, uh, you know, brings back that Maniac Mansion vibe. Um, so that about wraps things up for the main chunk of the episode. I hope everyone enjoyed the um, interview with David Warhol and the, the, all the notes we got put together. Um, you know, we would start off this podcast as a weekly podcast, um, but just recently switched to doing bi-weekly episodes to give us more time to prepare for episodes. Uh, and, you know, like the interview wouldn't have happened um, if we stuck to the old schedule. So I'm very happy, you know, so, uh, you know, apologies to the listeners if, uh, you know, the longer waits, uh, you know, kind of tedious in some way or, um, you know, undesirable. But uh, I'm very happy about the change. I, I really like putting work into these episodes and, you know, I'd like to share, uh, you know, do our best to share new information uh, if we can. So, yeah, I mean, just if we want to get all the information together, it um, it can be really time consuming and uh, like, and, but that's good because there's lots of information. So yeah. uh, we appreciate your patience as we, uh, you know, try to get all that information together and, you know, make sure that we have the best uh, information that we possibly can get, I yeah. guess, you know, so. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. all about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And just, I also want to say, you know, thanks a ton to David Warhol um, for participating, you know, and helping us out with this episode. No, and, and, th- and it's just amazing that, you know, these guys are kind of our heroes and you know the, the you you guys will respond to us and and answer our questions and just take some time to even just kind of meet with us and it's great and uh, we really really appreciate the the wealth of knowledge you bring to all of this and you know our interest in these games is really based on what you guys uh, did you know and so thanks for talking with us and, and providing that extra information yeah yeah thank you so much Uh, so it is time for comments from our previous episode. Um, start off with a comment here from Random Assault Podcast. They said, uh, I love your podcast. I was aware of the Famicom, but never thought to seek out music for games. Great stuff. 
And uh, I've responded to them there, but wanted to sort of, uh, you know, reiterate what I was saying. Uh, previous episode was about the Famicom Disk System expansion audio, uh, but we're definitely going to get around to covering all of the expansion audio. Um, I think the next one I probably want to talk about is the VRC6. Um, oh, nice. We have like a few episodes lined up, or maybe gimmick. I don't know, Steve, if you had a preference, which one you would want to do next. Um, I mean, either either or. Um, I mean, if, if we can start doing some of these, that'll be great. Yeah, um, but um, That's like my area of expertise. But yeah, like, <laughs> if this is the first episode you're listening to, something we've talked about in previous episodes, is that the Famicom has the same audio as the NES. Uh, like, it produces the same sounds. And, you know, you might have heard before that the Famicom has, like, better audio. And the reason for that is because it allowed for something called sound expansion. And the principle for, that that works on is, like, if you're familiar with the Super Game Boy, the, the thing that lets you play Game Boy cartridges in the Super Nintendo, um, something to keep in mind is, like, the Super Nintendo actually isn't emulating the Game Boy or making it those Game Boy sounds. Uh, the, the cartridge, uh, the Super Game car- cartridge, like, actually has a Game Boy in it, basically, and that is what's making the Game Boy sounds. And it just sort of routes the sounds through the Super Nintendo. Um, and sort of that's the principle behind the sound expansion for the Famicom is that you have other sounds coming from elsewhere and it, it passes through the system and just mixes with it. Uh, so it's really interesting. You have all these different kinds of sound expansion. And so they're coming from inside the cartridges themselves, like being passed through one of the extra pins, uh, that the Famicom has that the NES doesn't have. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, we're really excited to dig into that and talk about how all of the different kinds work. So. So we have an interesting comment from I am a track man here. Uh, he says, uh, the FTS only needs power when it's reading writing disc, which ideally only takes one pass, 10 to 15 seconds. The batteries go unused for the entirety of the time you're playing, except for that. I check them regularly to make sure uh, there's no leaking, but I've had the same batteries on one of my FDSs for almost a year now. It's really funny because like, I, I just feel like sometimes the batteries in mine just die because I, I haven't used them. Huh. Um, and, you know, like just kind of how a battery would die if you left it in anything and didn't use it. Um, so, but like I didn't realize that it, it's only using that power yeah, for only 10 to 15 that definitely, seconds. And yeah. to refresh the listeners, like we were talking about, you know, the FDS can run on batteries. And uh, so, you know, we're, yeah. we're sort of like laughing at it for being like a, a potential battery hog. Like, oh, why don't you just plug it in yeah. instead? But yeah, if it does only use yeah. it for the read write cycle, that's sort of like, uh, yeah, it's maybe not as bad of a battery hog as, you know, we were assuming it to be. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have another comment here from uh, I am a track man. And they say uh, DiscVax was only really available for the blue FDS discs. They're no different from normal FDS ones, besides the fact that they're blue and have shutters like a normal floppy. It's funny because these were only introduced a couple of years into the Famicom disc system's life, but the FDS already had the mechanism for dealing with shutters. Here's an image set uh, of one of the prizes and the case it comes in, as well as an image of the blue and yellow disc. And there is a link, yeah. an Imgur link as well. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, because we were talking about, you did mention the blue disc, Steve, um before mm-hmm. and we were talking about the disc facts but yeah i didn't really realize it was specifically for those kind of discs um yeah yeah a very weird and bizarre system for to have existed you know looking back that you could uh send it submit your high scores via fax i mean that's just insane so yeah i mean it's really cool because like if you click the link um so there was a we didn't even mention this and i this is something that no one even called us on like the disc system had its own little mascot discoon Oh, this little yeah. this little guy, yeah, and I and the fact that we didn't mention it is kind of weird. Uh, it didn't come up, but if you can see, this has one of the special gold discs they get, and it comes in this little discoon like carrying case. 
and it like the gold discs are really awesome like yeah. a Mar- this is a picture of the mario golf thing and they're actually pretty r- readily available on ebay you huh. can you can actually just buy them it's funny um, um for a decent price yeah I remember a bunch of years back people were like talking about like oh what's your favorite like logo for like a video game console or system mm-hmm. and i posted yeah. that because i was like oh this looks awesome and i remember just the immediate response i got like that one's terrible I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh he's, it's he's adorable. Cute. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's absolutely adorable. <laughs> it's it's actually very yeah, good. It rules. Oh yeah, I guess we. So we have another uh, comment from I'm a Track Man. Uh, this one's regarding. Yeah, we had mentioned the amount of time that Nintendo uh, was willing or able to do repairs on their old uh, hardware, like on the Famicom Disk System. We've mentioned they did it like up through to the like early 2000s. I think Steve like, kind of yeah. offhand said 2001 or so. Um, something like that yeah but he says it's uh 2007 actually um so he says following Hmm. uh nintendo of japan's 20 years policy where they'd continue servicing your hardware until 20 years uh after it was introduced that's crazy that's crazy so i really love the idea like i was seeing before in the episode like i'd have to update my comment like oh i love the idea that you could be playing your game boy advance and you're like oh wait but i want to fire up the disc system uh and it's broken nintendo please repair it but like 2007 i mean that's like we're uh we're talking uh nintendo wii right yeah the wii the wii was out then and then like i mean the xbox 360 is like right around then i think yeah right? like basically yeah so it, it's funny to think about like someone using the wii maybe downloading virtual console versions of these games uh but you could still like have hardware from that era being repaired so um mm-hmm. yeah weird, weird like legacy type um service <laughs> above and beyond corporate responsibility yeah there. And uh, Hun Retro Geek says something in, in response to kind of a weird sound design thing that uh, Patrick found in the last episode. Uh, they say, uh, this is the hardware sweep unit of the 2A03 pulse channels, and it can do the same sort of thing you did in your FDS modulator example, only that it can do it at 120 hertz. This sound is made by them resetting the pitch to the bass pitch every 60th of a second while still having the pitch sweep active. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, thanks for the feedback on that. Uh, that's definitely something I actually was talking with him, uh, exchanging messages about ideas for future episodes. And uh, like later on down the line, we want to do an episode about like weird, really like obscure modern kind of hacks or just like weird sort of sound design tricks you can do on the NES. Like even going beyond like sound design tricks that were used in soundtracks back in the day. And um, setting the NES to have like a faster refresh rate, uh, you could sort of call it overclocking. I'm sure that's not really technically right. Um, but yeah, doing that allows you to get weird sounds out of the system. So the example we had in the last episode was uh, this one FDS track. And then also the uh, Blaster Master Game Over jingle has like this funny burp sound in it. Uh, that's done mm. done by using a faster refresh rate. And it's an incredibly rare thing. You don't find it uh, in many NES soundtracks at all. So uh, yeah. Very, very cool thing. And I should also mention, there's a bunch of comments going into this, so we're, we're not going to read them all, but um, there's like a little debate about like what technically counts as FM. And uh, so that's an interesting topic because, uh, you know, the FTS w- was something that like, uh, you know, is a very primitive form of it. And, um, you know, inevitably we're going to get to the Sega Genesis and other FM units. Um, so you can expect a deeper dive uh, on FM audio in a future episode for sure. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so next up is uh, Name That Game. Let's listen to last uh, week's song. Oh, I hear a cat. Is that your cat? That is my cat. Roars is making an appearance. Adorable. Uh, you, when, you, when you get me to guest, you get him to guest as that's well. That's great.
And for those of you, uh, hopefully you guys guessed that, the winner, the actual uh, guess, the first person to guess it was Mr. Norbert, 1994, who guessed that it is from Deep Dungeon number four. It is NSF track one, uh, probably an overworld theme or something. He says so. It's funny because I was we were trying to think of something a little bit more obscure because the listeners have been completely nailing this section. Uh, the first day an episode goes up uh, for the last several weeks, the you know within hours I should say even of the podcast going up, someone guesses the the track. Um, Mr. Norber is very involved with the NSF archive, so it's like if mm-hmm. if I'm gonna pick something from the NES or Famicom again, uh, I'm gonna have to even go more obscure. And I mean that's a Famicom only game. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think we're going to have to switch it up and go to a different console. So um, we have something we're going to try again, see if anyone can figure this one out. Uh, let's give it a listen. Uh, best of luck, everyone. See if you can name that game. Gary, you have a song of the week picked out for us? I, I do. Yeah. I, I thank you for letting me choose one. Um, I chose the uh, the song called Pleasure um, from the Fantasy Star 2 soundtrack for Genesis, Sega Genesis, which um, is a soundtrack I, I really, really love. Um, grew up watching my cousin play this game before I really even knew what role-playing games were and uh, and loved this. Uh, you know, I... I been involved in fantasy and the like and, and read fantasy books and stuff and was very used to these kind of medieval pastiches and was way into this game's kind of sci-fi um kind of faster paced sci-fi weirder soundtrack that goes and this is my favorite song from that soundtrack excellent thank you and uh thank you for listening to retro game audio 